This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Sarah, your host for the new for this episode of the New Books Network podcast. We are here with Adam Crimble, a lecturer of the digital humanities at the University of College London and an editor at Programming Historian, which shares peer-reviewed tutorials about digital tools, techniques, and workflows. As such, it should come to no surprise that his book entitled Technology and the Historian, Transformations in the Digital Age, is all about the intersection of historical research practice and digital technologies. So in this work, Crimble goes through the history and backgrounds of how historical archives, teaching, and publishing have been altered and touched by technology, for better or for worse, and also establishes an impressive language with which we should discuss the emerging challenges for historians and academics in general face now. So with that, uh, welcome, Adam. Thank you very much for having me. So I guess let's start off with maybe you introducing yourself a little bit more and then describing your motivations um, for researching and writing this book. Sure. Um, so I'm I'm a historian by training, I suppose, and I also have a background in in digital humanities. Um, I I first came across digital humanities when I was taking a master's program in public history, and it kind of introduced me to the potential of technology for historical work, and um, I just kind of got interested from there and um, decided to have a go at it, and spent kind of the next ten years learning everything I could. Um, and in, in the process of that, I kind of hopped around between Canada, uh, a little bit of time in the United States, and then coming over to the, U- the UK. Um, and I noticed a lot of kind of differences between how everybody was doing things. And I noticed that they didn't notice the differences between how they were doing things in different places. So that was kind of the motivation that I had was to help people to see uh, where they fit within this wider story of how different groups of historians use technology in different ways. Yeah, so I guess in, in, in this book, you break down sort of like what digital history is, mostly by like researching, collection management, teaching, learning, and communicating. But I guess maybe as like a jumping point for this conversation, I guess what do you think like a big or main takeaway is on how digital technologies impacted these practices? And maybe since you alluded to just now, um, so the differences that you've seen sort of regionally what sort of differences were there that you've noticed? Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of the big differences across the Atlantic, I think there are different pressures in the university systems in the UK versus in the United States, for example. Um, in mm-hmm. the UK, there's a lot of measuring of research quality or at least alleged research quality. Um, and that comes with funding for universities if you've got evidence of good researchers. So um, that sculpted the approach that people take towards digital humanities or digital history in the UK. It's very 
research focused. It's all about publishing books and publishing articles. And then I noticed that in, in the United States, by comparison, actually, there was a lot of work that was focused on getting stories out to people using the internet. Um, so more of what we might call public history or um, the type of work that happens in museums and archives mm -hmm. and the outreach, um, creating stories, creating communities, and using the internet to bridge the vast spaces that we have in North America, which isn't so much a problem um, for European countries like the UK. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I like that. Or I, it sounds like you're saying just because like the United States and Canada are, are just geographically larger, is that sort of what you're saying impact the type of um, work that is done by? Yeah, I think for because the spaces are mm -hmm. so big, um, particularly within historical education, uh, even when I was doing my undergraduate 20 years ago, we didn't have access to a lot of archival materials because the archives were far away. It was an eight hour drive to our national archives from where I did my my research. So um, when the Internet came along, there was this great potential to bridge those gaps in ways that wasn't possible before. Um, and that has never really been a problem in the UK. The, the archives are always down the road and always have been. And in fact, because of the nature of things like the British <laughs> Empire, the entire world's records are down the road. So uh, there's a different kind of experience with the closeness to materials um, in, in Britain than there is in North America. Yeah, that definitely leads me to like one of the one of the main questions that I wanted to ask was like, how did technology sort of like empower researchers to be able to like ask new questions about history or like how did they sort of choose the data that they looked at now that so much of it is maybe at your fingertips when it's on the internet or online? Yeah, there's been a lot more working with digitized material and um, that's created some interesting issues, I think, for historical research because what got digitized 20 years ago was mm -hmm. the product of a decisions of funding bodies of scholars that were operating 20 years ago. And that money and that energy isn't really there anymore. So there, there's a lot of projects on a fairly small number of resources. Um, there's one here in, I'm, I'm based in the UK. There's one in the UK called the Old Bailey Online. Um, and they tracked how many studies appeared using their materials in the years after it went up online in 2003. And it's, it runs now into the hundreds. So we have, and I'm one of those people who, who publishes studies using it. So it's really kind of narrowed the types of sources we use because we're now so um, primed to want to use stuff that's easy to access. But at the same time, it, it has meant that people have been able to ask different types of questions. Um, a lot of people are doing what we might now call linguistic research on historical sources at scale. So thinking about patterns of language use, thinking about ways that, uh, such as in my research, how migrant communities are described um, differently than the host community might be. So uh, there's a lot of potential for, I guess, counting and measuring that was difficult to do before because you there's only so much mental brain power that you have when you're when you're reading something one word at a time. Yeah, I guess that that gets me or that reminds me of um, sort of like at the beginning of the book you described how the like computers and the digital era was mostly used for like those like counting based metrics or like maybe maybe not finding stories or telling stories yet, but using the computer as like sort of this like number crunching device. Yeah, the computer as a calculator. And, and of course, in the 70s mm -hmm. and the 60s, I mean, they didn't have monitors. They didn't have keyboards and mouses the way that we think of them today. So, yeah, people have adapted to what computers 
were useful for. And, and counting was definitely one of the early things that people discovered a use for. Um, with the visual interfaces getting better and better and people getting more creative, we see a lot of artists coming in. So you see some really interesting data visualization, which um, people either love or hate. And I think it probably comes down to whether or not you're a visual learner or not. Um, I, I personally love data visualization. I think it's a great way to tell stories. It wasn't really feasible to do that in the 1960s with the computers that were available. But as time goes on, people start to push the envelope and explore things like 3D environments, or there's a really great um, American project, uh, which is called Recreating St. Paul's, Virtual St. Paul's, which is um, the, the main church in London. And they, they recreated the entire thing in the the soundscape and everything, so you can kind of experience what it would have been like to listen to a sermon at St. Paul's 500 years ago. So, so much potential for things that just aren't counting, um, but are only possible mm -hmm. because of the way technology has continued to get more complex. Yeah, I that that project in particular really stood out to me. I like or like when you because you, you cite that, and then I like went to go look at it. That's like super cool. It's such a really cool project, but. Um, so that, I guess sort of the flip side maybe to that is like, it seems like the types of stories that are able to be told, like historical narratives that are able to be told is super shaped by the types of tools available. But sort of, is there like a, the flip side of that where like historians were able to impact like the development of those digital tools? There's a few cases where historians get in there and really create tools that weren't available before. Um, there's no historians creating their own kind of uh, programming languages from scratch. They're always using something that's been created elsewhere, but they often combine it in new ways. Um, so there's a Canadian project called Voyant Tools, which was, uh, it's not created by historians, but by humanists, specifically to enable the type of questions that humanities scholars want to ask of, of machine-readable texts. And I think that's a really good example of, of somebody actually going out and producing uh, a production quality piece of software that's used by thousands of people around the world, um, which didn't actually come out of Silicon Valley. It came out of uh, a university classroom or a university lab. So there are a few examples of that, but um, it, it is dependent on what's happening in the wider tech sector. So there's only so far that historians and humanities scholars can really push the technology because they're not engineers at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And, and part of the book, you talk about this like hack versus yak differences between um, like historians, either like you hack and use the computer a lot or you yak and like you talk about it. Um, is that sort of like what you're alluding to like here? Um, the hack versus yak was a, was a big fight, I guess you could call it, that happened in, um, in digital humanities more broadly about 10 years ago. Um, and there's been a lot of kind of fighting for ground and everybody wants to um, be celebrated, I suppose. So the people that were really good at computer programming mm -hmm. um, wanted to be celebrated for those skills. And the people that liked to have the theoretical conversations wanted to be celebrated for those as well. So um, I think a lot of what I talk about in the book actually is to try to point out that all of those groups have their value, but they also had different mm -hmm. ambitions and different aims of what they were trying to achieve. Um, and that's okay, and that we could probably benefit from celebrating all of it. Yeah, I guess that also makes you wonder, like, maybe with the emergence of, like, technology and digital tools, like, in historical research, and I guess academia in general, like, 
did the sort of advent and inclusion of this technology highlight just like problems within academia or within like historical practice? I think there were some moments where um, the traditional academic world um, felt under attack in, in certain aspects mm-hmm. by what was going on in the digital space. Um, about 15, 20 years ago, blogging kind of really took off. And that caused a lot of uh, upset, I think, in some groups of people who uh, didn't like this idea that anybody could just speak and, and share their ideas. Uh, because, of course, the scholarly publication model is that ideas have to go through gatekeepers and only certain people get the platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and blogging kind of turned that on its head. And blogging has evolved now into other forms of social media. Uh, you don't see a lot of bloggers um, in the same way that you used to. It's just part of a wider ecosystem. But that kind of really turned it upside down for a lot of people who, um, in some cases, warned young scholars not to get into blogging because it was um, seen as potentially airing your dirty laundry in public or putting your foot in your mouth. Uh, And of course, I think we've largely seen that that hasn't happened in the last few years because so many people are now out there on social media with uh, mostly I think, good results rather than negative ones. But it definitely jarred a lot of people for a while who weren't used to that freedom of expression that the new platforms allowed. Yeah, I guess, how would you say that that sort of blogging and social media and, yeah, sort of that, like, lack of a traditional peer review gatekeeping, like, how has that sort of changed the maybe maybe history in general, like historical research in general, but also just, like, in particular, like, what types of questions people are asking? in like historical practice? I think actually it became a really kind of normal part of uh, a lot of the big funded practice projects, sorry, um, for a few years where everybody started thinking we have to start engaging directly with the public. And one of the cheapest ways we can do that is through blogging. So everybody had to become um, more literate in conversing, not just with experts, but getting um, Joe Public interested in what they were doing and sharing project updates. And and I think that has led to um, a new type of scholar that it's not all scholars, but there's definitely a lot of people now who are really good at engaging those publics and and almost building followings, um, becoming mini celebrities for their ability to mm-hmm. kind of draw a crowd. Um, and again, that's a bit of an inversion of, of the way that the social hierarchy used to work in academia. It's not necessarily the quality of your ideas. Sometimes it's your ability to explain them that... Um, that you can make a career on. So I think that's actually, in many respects, it's a good thing because it's opened up new channels to communicate, but it's it means that people with different skills can also um, benefit from them. And then we've got diversity within the, within the professions. I guess that also makes me wonder, like, what was the motivation for that, like, more public-facing scholarship? Yeah, I, I guess that depends on where you're, where you're living. Um, I think particularly in the UK, mm-hmm. there was... Um, For the last kind of 10 years, there's been this crunch on public finance. So there's a lot of push towards having to justify public expenditure. And if you're getting grant funding, then the the taxpayers asking questions about whether or not this is worth it. So I think that's been part of the way that that's been demonstrated to the taxpayer. Like, here's where your money's went. And and here we are um, sharing our findings with you and and not just locking them up in the peer-reviewed journals that you don't have access to or that you don't have. Um, the vocabulary to understand all the jargon. And uh, it's it's just this opening of, of scholarship that's part of a wider open um, movement. Yeah, so it kind of sounds like you're saying that because the projects themselves were sort of funded by 
the government like government agencies that people are expecting to have the outcomes of that be accessible to them? Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I think that probably started in the medical field where people are have a relative or somebody stuck in the hospital and you want to be able to access the medical research and you're frustrated at having to pay $90 an article to get access to it. And it's kind of spread through the humanities as well. People started saying, well, yeah, I should have access to this medical research, but I also want access to the cultural research that's been produced. So um, there's there's a growing movement, I think, not everywhere within the humanities, but in certain pockets that are really pushing for that. And I think um, it's pretty attractive to most taxpayers to uh, think that the money that they're investing actually comes back and that they should have access to the results. Yeah, that definitely makes sense to me, especially um, I'm coming from like a, I work in open access publishing. So that that definitely rings true for the things that I, I care about and the things that I think should be, just should change in like academic structures. But I guess I think maybe sometimes like like research in like any field like comes at like a price. Um, and I guess like these digital collections are like funded by like private trusts or nonprofits alongside like universities and governments. Um, so I guess also like I feel like too like tech changes so like quickly and rapidly and projects aren't always like supported and maintained over time. So I guess I'm like wondering like what sort of like partnerships or efforts should be made by like historians or universities or governments and publishers, like this huge conglomerate of people and stakeholders. It's like what sort of work should be done to like make sure that this like socio like sociological or historical work like does propagate into this like dynamic digital changing space. Yeah, there's been a huge number of big projects that um, particularly digitization projects where huge amounts of money were Mm -hmm. spent creating these resources um, designed with technologies that in many cases now are obsolete or considered security risks. Um, There was a big problem as well with people retiring or moving universities. And then the university where they worked when the project started decided they no longer had a vested interest in keeping it alive. So they just turned it off. Um, And we've got millions of dollars worth of digitization projects that just are now gone, um, not on the Internet at all. So um, the ones that are still around 20 years later, which is a a dwindling number, are ones where um, organizations have had to either come up with sustainable business models, um, which could be partially funded by um, ongoing commitments or by subscriptions or donations or something like that or where um, a university or an organization has committed to um, preserving it or updating it from time to time. And there's a few organizations around the world that are actually quite good at that type of work, but it can't solve uh, the problem for everything. And we, we are still losing digital humanities resources and digitization projects as the years go on and, and things get turned off. Every year, more and more of them get turned off and we lose a little bit of that history. And the money that went into it. Mm, that's tragic almost, just like that. The, the things like all this work and like efforts done by people, it's just going to the wayside just because there's not the, or is it like a financial capacity or is it like a people aren't there to maintain it or is like, I guess, what are some of the reasons that you see the like dwindling ability to maintain these databases? Um, well, I mean, I think we don't, we, we live in a culture where we don't value old technology. We get rid of it. I mean, do you have your VCRs from when you were a kid? You, you oh, don't I keep actually them. do. You so do, I'm okay. Not... 
most people don't, right? You, what do you do with yeah, your CD no, collection? Yeah. The CDs that you had when you were young, they're gone. We don't keep that stuff. We, we, we've been raised that you need the newest iPhone and you need the newest whatever. Um, and, and so we don't celebrate it. And if you look at a digitization project from 1998, it has really simple interface. The graphics are really grainy because the resolution of the computers at the time wasn't very good. There's nothing dynamic because there was no dynamic internet technology at the time. It's all static pages. So we look at it and we think it doesn't have value. Um, and I think that's a cultural problem that we need to start um, valuing a bit more. I think video games has done a, have done a good job of that because I think people can still be convinced that Super Mario from 1986 is still have still has value, um, but not necessarily the uh, the digitization project from five years after that that um, looks just the same and had the same monetary investment to go into it. Um, but we don't keep it because it it isn't something that we've been culturally primed to value. Or it's a challenge. I've definitely tried to use microfiche before, and it's just hard to work with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can blame Apple for that because they've done such a good job of making all of our computers so user-friendly and intuitive. Um, but it's easy to forget that that was an iterative process that took decades to perfect. And so anything that happened before wasn't as easy to use because the amazing uh, interface designers hadn't yet got their hands on it. I guess, like, is there, do you think that there's a way to sort of, I guess, either bring back the hype for microfiche or to try and, like, make efforts to turn those sort of locked away information, in a sense, bring that to, like, a, a more, like, fun, in quotes, or, like, interactable, dynamic sort of research interface? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I'm trying to do by writing this book, and there's other people writing stuff like this as well, is to to bring a bit of celebration back to that work and to acknowledge the intellectual work that went into it and how important it was as a stepping stone to get us where we are today and to just kind of recreate some value um, around it. There's also, I think, increasingly in the last couple of years, um, an awareness that we've lost a lot of those websites, and in particular, because they were technologically unsustainable or difficult to keep going. So I'm seeing a lot of my colleagues these days creating simpler websites that are database free in many respects. So they're just a bunch of files on a computer somewhere that you don't need a, you don't need an active database or an active server running to keep them working. So um, more book-like in, in the way that they design these digital resources with the idea that they'll be easier to maintain in the future even if they're a little bit less flashy than they might have been otherwise. Um, and I think that's actually a pushback against the loss that we've experienced in all these websites that have been turned off because they were too difficult to keep going. I guess, do you think that like when um, these archives were first being like made and stored, was there sort of a, a thought to how to keep them going in the future? Or like was the field just too new to be able to expect how to do that? Yeah, I think, the, I mean, there wasn't a manual and nobody could see mm -hmm. the future. So some people made good intention decisions that just for reasons beyond their control proved not to work out in the end. Um, the ones that survived, probably a little bit of luck, probably a little bit of good thinking, forward thinking. Um, but th there's no way that you can you can kind of see what's coming down the pipeline 20 years in the future. And I know that the universities, I mean, I've been speaking to a lot of people who've been involved in these early projects. Universities at the time just saw the money 
and they wanted the funding. So they made promises of perpetually keeping these things online. And then, of course, the, that became non-viable. They realized nobody was checking in on it. Uh, the people that made the promises retired or moved on. And all of a sudden, you've got this institution that isn't even necessarily mm -hmm. aware that it got this, this money to create this thing 20 years ago and certainly doesn't see any kind of future potential value in it. So they just kind of go. I would hope and anticipate that sort of seeing seeing archives and databases left unmanaged or taken offline has um, had some impetus for creating standards now for databases or like making sure that they're sort of like what you're saying about the websites, like that they're able and easy to be maintained. I guess like what sort of standards have you seen um, come up in practice now? Yeah, so to um, ensure that. The, in the UK, about five years ago, the um, major funding body decided that it needed technological sustainability plans for any project that was going to create a digital output. And when mm -hmm. that started getting attached to the money, um, that started to get universities to come up with really robust plans. And in fact, within five years, they stopped having that requirement in, in large part because all of the technological sustainability plans were so good that they didn't need to check them anymore because everybody had institutional policies for what technologies they were going to use. Um, they had to prove that they had expertise locally that would allow them to continue to support those technologies um, and, and data archiving policies that would at least preserve the data, even if the website fell down. So uh, there has been a big movement towards that. And it was really just by tying it to the money and saying you can't have the money unless you can prove that you can keep this stuff up, that we really start to see change. Yeah, sort of like that uh, top top down from institutions or funding bodies. Exactly, yeah. I guess maybe to maybe change a little bit topics, um, I think something that, something that stood out to me as interesting was like in your discussion about like archiving like a live history, like you used the example of like the 9-11 attacks on the United States to try and capture like quickly changing and emerging conversations as like the country and the world is processing like in real time, like grief and conspiracies. Um, I think like that live history also sort of ties into what you talk about in their chapter about like blogging and sharing personal experiences while um, sharing research insights. So I guess that makes you wonder like how have these like more personal accounts of history, like archived on the web, maybe changed how historical practices done or like how we think about archiving or something like that? Yeah, I think those projects about, you said the live archiving, the September 11th archive, which was a project out of the Center for History and New Media um, at George Mason University. And they did a number of those. There was another one to do with the Katrina hurricane as well. And it was a really interesting kind of approach to creating an archive that wouldn't have been created otherwise. And it was historians thinking about the historian of the future and recognizing that they were living through this really important moment. And if it wasn't collected, that it would be lost. So, so you get this incredible resource, which is just full of people grieving and trying to make sense of what's going on. And I think that has made us as, his, as historians, as a, as a field, aware of how the internet is changing our source base in really interesting ways. And we've gone from this mm -hmm problem of uh, scarcity, where you've got three letters in an archive somewhere in Virginia, to this problem of abundance, where you've got 374,000 posts on a forum 
And you've got to figure out how you can actually make sense of that. And how do you tell a story when you've got too much information rather than not enough? So I think it's forced the field to develop new skills on dealing with abundance. And I think that's really exciting. It also seems too that there's there's like an abundance in some sense, but I think maybe more towards the end of your book, you discuss maybe like the the limitations of some of these archival practices where there's just some parts, like there's just so many stories that like aren't archived or like aren't online because for like whatever reason, like not enough money in the in the country or like this sort of general conversation of like the global South not being included in a lot of academic conversations, even beyond history. Um, so I guess what, what, what sort of like that balance of too much information and not enough information and sort of like almost like the right information and like creating the archive itself, like invented, like that invented archive. Yeah. I mean, I think an interesting example is the CD-ROM movement back in the 1990s. And of course, to create a CD-ROM involves a lot of investment and the way that they got that investment back was to sell copies of it. And uh, what we found is that most of, or at least a disproportionate number of those CD-ROMs ended up being on American topics for American audiences, because that's where the money was, that's where the market was for that particular technology. And we get people at the time complaining and asking, saying, where's my Latin American history resource or where's my African history resource? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of people now who are trying to fill in some of those gaps, including in those, those places in what we sometimes call the global south. So people saying uh, we weren't included in this, so I'm just going to get on and do it. I'm going to create the record or I'm going to create the archive that wasn't created. Um, And I think actually we in the West are just not great at noticing that work happening, Um, even when it is happening. uh, It doesn't necessarily come on our radars, but there is a huge imbalance between how much money uh, a region has um, and how much of it they can invest in these types of resources. So we definitely see more stories from certain communities and fewer stories from, from others. But I do think there's an increasing awareness of that. Um, and I think there's some really interesting work in indigenous histories, for example, where people are trying to create spaces for mm-hmm. conversations that haven't been had before. And I think that's that's another positive that we can see coming up in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely like that idea. Um, again, biased, but I think it's really cool. Like when it's more community led, like it definitely makes sense that a lot of like policies and stuff and like funding is top down. But like when something does like organically emerge from different communities that's always like super exciting because it like it, it does mean that like that thing is tailored for like their interests like it's not like forced in any way yeah and i guess there's a question for historians sometimes to to ask where they fit in those projects if anywhere mm-hmm. um should they should they lead them should they offer technical support should they be the ones that say have we thought about standards to make sure that this thing lasts or should people just be left to their passion projects and uh, tell their histories the way that they want to tell them? I guess not everything has to last for it to be successful. Um, and maybe sometimes we have to just let things be uh, rather than get involved. Yeah, that sounds like a hard balance to sort of find, though, because like you do want it to last. Like even if even if it's not something that you yourself created, like but there is this history that like you are interested in or want to learn about that isn't yeah, maybe it isn't your cultural history, but like it should exist for the future in general, like no matter what almost. So are there like, are there any like sort of 
global efforts towards this sort of standardization or things like that? Well, I think, again, this is something that actually historians and humanities scholars follow um, good practice. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of learning the good practice as defined by the software engineers and and the people who run the Internet who um, aren't historians. I mean, I, I think... It, it's up to us to to learn what to do and how to do it well, rather than necessarily to, at least from a technological standpoint, to create the technology to do that, because I don't think that's the strength within the field. Um, but I definitely think there's been more people interested recently in learning those best practices and making sure that other people in the field are aware of them, um, particularly people who might not necessarily have the time or the inclination to uh, go do that exploring. So I think it is trickling through the field at a much quicker rate than it was in the past. But there's not agreement either. I mean, you can that, say it's, sorry. Mm. I, I was just saying, it's, there's not agreement that open or preserving is necessarily the best thing all, all around the world. There are cultures where people don't want to share their histories. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very Western thing, mm. I think, to be pro-open um, and pro-open culture. And I think there's a lot of communities that are um, perhaps rightly cautious with sharing their traditional knowledge, for example, um, openly and for free with anybody who wants to use it because they don't know how they're going to use it and they might not have the best intentions. So um, I think that's something that's definitely going to be increasingly discussed is is how we make sure that we're not just moving towards uh, one vision of the future and that there's space for people to have different cultural values around things like openness or standards or uh, what a good digital history or digital humanities project would look like. Yeah, that's a so I guess maybe related to that, kind of in a sense, um, in like a few examples that you share um, in the book, like internal publishing practices, or you talk a little bit about like Ken Burns' Civil War documentary that you've noted that maybe historians were kind of left out of those conversations. I guess it makes me like wonder like why that was or like how they maybe could have, should have been looped into journal publishing practices or different documentaries or like in this case, um, how tech is being like made and defined, like maybe not, maybe not historians making the thing, like making the internet itself, but like being a part of conversations at least on how to like propagate and better archiving practices. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to get an invitation to the table, isn't it? I mean, here in Britain, Mm. just this (laughs) past week, we have a new chair of the British museum has just been announced and, it's a politician who has no experience in in the heritage industry at all. And of course, all the historians in the country are thinking, why didn't you get somebody who actually knows something about cultural heritage to be involved in that? So I think there are, um, there are conversations around the world about how to get historians and humanities scholars um, taken seriously in some of these spaces. I don't think we have to be everywhere, though. I think it's perfectly um, feasible mm-hmm. for a Hollywood producer to decide he or she wants to make a historically themed film and not have a historian on the on the team. Um, we've seen that work in lots of interesting and creative ways in the past. Some opt for a historical consultant, and that then creates a slightly different result. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know. It's just different. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think where we've got historians who are interested mm-hmm. in, in entering those spaces, it's great, and we should we should support them. Um, but I also don't think we need a world that is um, run entirely by historians and people have lots of different perspectives um, that don't necessarily involve that that area of expertise. So I don't necessarily think that's a problem. Imagine you get a lot of pushback 
about that? Or uh, do you get a lot of pushback about that sort of idea from like other historians? In- oh, his, historians are full of opinions, and and yeah, we rarely agree on everything. <laughs> I mean, that's that, we're, we're kind of trained to argue with each other. So yeah, I get pushback on everything. <laughs> I guess that kind of reminds me of like at the at the end, you have like the different models or modalities of history. I'm trying to flip flip to that image that you have um, of, yeah, being like exclusive, like fragmentary and uh, sort of like the parallel streams. Is that, I mean, maybe could you explain sort of those different uh, models? Yeah, so there's been about 10 years of conversations about what digital history is or what it should be. And um, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of conversations around what's in and what's out. Does this count as digital history? or not. And and in the process of writing this book, I just sort of started to realize that that it wasn't one kind of coherent set of activities. You if you're doing digital history, I can't necessarily guess what that's going to be because you could be doing it in lots of different ways. You could be interested in in archival materials and how to share them over the internet. You could be interested in scholarly communication. You could be interested in classroom teaching and ways that you can use technology to teach better. So uh, I think what I'm trying to do with this book and with the figure that you're describing is to show people that uh, there are different ways of understanding this. And I think my way is very much that um, digital digital influences on history and on the humanities come in many, many different shapes. And it's not necessarily productive to try to organize them under a perfect little round circle where everything kind of fits together um, nicely, which is uh, was known as the big tent a few years ago. Um, everybody fits under the big tent and um, it, it didn't necessarily tell the story in a coherent way that people outside the tent could understand. So um, this is my attempt, I think, to separate the story into different streams that are perhaps a bit more, more coherent. Yeah, I think, I think that makes sense, especially like considering I feel like just the term digital humanities that goes beyond history, goes beyond technology and probably even goes beyond like academia itself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's artists that are involved in what we would call digital humanities work. There are people in computer science who have science degrees, but are, are interested in how that can have an impact on, on humanities work. It's, I, I think increasingly there's also, there are businesses and organizations set up doing digital humanities-like work supporting open publishing, as you know, as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's this space between, and there's lots of people using it in lots of different ways. So um, we don't necessarily need to put a lasso around it to understand it. We can understand it as lots of different threads going in lots of different directions. It seems to almost like that idea itself probably even challenges like the status quo of history of academia. I guess, how, how have you seen of that like pushback against specific spheres or specific silos even have have you seen that sort of like play out or like change or change like change historical practice or digital humanities in in general or like has like what's sort of like what's been like sort of the dynamic of changing that status quo i guess is the the question i'm trying to ask there yeah i think there's been i mean there's been conversations particularly in the united states for the last decade or so about humanities being in decline and recruitment of, of humanities students being mm-hmm. in decline. Um, we're also seeing that pushback now in the United Kingdom 
uh, a lot of the smaller departments are, are struggling. We've got colleagues who are losing their jobs as programs shut down. Uh, and I think that students, young students, particularly as they're kind of entering that age to go into universities, are, are being pushed more and more towards sciences, towards practical degrees. And I think that universities are slow to react to that. Um, people like to keep their traditional departments, many of which are now 100, 150 years old in the sense of defining the subject areas. So, so digital humanities is, is one of those ones that kind of mm-hmm. comes in in between um, a little bit of science, a little bit of humanities. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if that gets uptake in, um, in the next generation or if, if not. I mean, there's been a lot of conversations on both sides as to whether or not that's a good thing. But I do see it as universities, at least some universities, trying to adapt to that need to change the model a little bit and allow people to um, learn in a different box than we used to offer. That uh, still draws from those older boxes, but combines it in new ways. Like at the at the end of the book, you provide like this very extensive and very impressive uh, glossary of terms that um, are important for this space. I, I feel like that maybe maybe that sort of shifting in the ecosystem sort of reminds me of like these like maybe new definitions of terms, if you will. So I, I just basically like wonder like what like what kind of conversations, like what kind of language should people who have stake in like digital humanities as a big of an umbrella or sphere that is, like what what sort of conversations should be should different groups be having in order to like keep this sort of dynamic space existing in like universities? Yeah. I, I mean, I think we're seeing a shift towards more careful use of language. Um, so 10 years ago, you would see on grant applications, people talk about how they were going to use digital methods. And um, somebody, I think someone in Finland made a joke about that how you should replace the word digital methods with magic because it doesn't mean anything. I mean, <laughs> you have to be more specific. What is it that you're going to do to your materials? How are you going to create new knowledge? Um, and I think you, you don't see that mm-hmm. anymore. Or if you do see it, it doesn't get funded or it doesn't get published because it, it doesn't tell you anything. And I think people are getting better at being more careful about their language and explaining exactly what it is that they do. And I think actually that's allowed conversations to be had that are more productive and coherent because there are more conversations rather than everybody trying to have all eyes on me and to be the center of digital humanities, that's less important than it used to be, I think. Uh, And we can have lots and lots of different conversations using more specific language that really captures what we're trying to do and solve the problems that we're trying to solve, um, which is in in every case is is a limited set of problems. We can't do everything. So we've got to be specific. Yeah, I know a quote that I underlined was like, being a part of digital humanities was stronger than the need to be known for one's historical work. I think that is kind of maybe what you just said there. That was a that was a good quote. Yeah, I mean, that one of the big things that digital humanities offered for people, particularly in the in the social media spaces, was a way of belonging in um in an academia mm-hmm. that didn't necessarily yet have a spot for interdisciplinary scholars. So you could create these virtual communities that were on the internet and transcended sometimes entire continents and across oceans mm-hmm. uh, in a way that created belonging for people that otherwise might have felt like the only one in their town that had any interest in what they were doing. And then all of a sudden you've got this this group of people around the world that think what you're doing is cool. 
And I think a lot of people liked that. They liked that feeling of, of community and belonging that, mm -hmm. that the traditional university wasn't really providing. Is there a space for that community-led organization in academia? Or is, like, are, is academia being more like accommodating for that type of maybe like non-traditional academic output? I think there are organizations that try to fill some of those gaps. I mean, scholarly societies have traditionally tried to do that. So you get mm -hmm. people who are interested in a common theme and um, they probably in the past would have had their own journal or their own newsletter and they would come together once a year at a conference. Um, they probably now communicate online through social media. Uh, they might still have an event, although I think those are slowly kind of fading away um, because they're they're too expensive, um, maybe not as green as we might like them to be because of all the travel. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think there are people who are always trying to create the communities that aren't necessarily in the university, but the spaces that they would like to have, the friendly spaces, the collegial spaces. And um, I think digital humanities is just part of that. I don't think it's necessarily... Um, different than what you would find if you looked at uh, med schools or uh, physics departments. There's, there's always going to be spaces where people want to get together and, and be friendly and be supportive. I think that can also makes me maybe a little bit wonder if universities or the academy even needs to be a part of these conversations. I mean, they I guess they're the ones that fund these things normally, but um, sort of like in that, in that parallel structure system that, you propose like it could definitely go beyond like universities and the academy so not not that i say i want that to happen but i think there's like that potential for it to go go beyond specific spheres well and it has and done to already have it be like truly community-led yeah it, it has it has done already in a couple of specific examples of almost spin-outs that started in universities but um, have been pulled by their team members, have been pulled away from the university to make sure that the university doesn't have control. So um, Zotero is a really great example of that. That's a piece of software that's mm -hmm. to help people with bibliographies. Originally came out of a history department at George Mason University. They've incorporated as a charity in the United States, and it's now run entirely as a charitable organization um, by its board members, and the university actually doesn't have any direct stake in it anymore. And I think that was probably a move that was at least in part um, a preservation strategy to make sure that the, the project outlived anybody's tenure at that particular university so that we don't have the problem of projects getting shut down the way that we saw uh, in the past. And yeah, there are some other examples of that as well. I think it's it's an important, but it's a niche um, part of that conversation. It is always something to be, or to try and, or for me to maybe try and find like a one size fits all. So I, my, my immediate thought was just like, oh, we should all just have these like nonprofit, like charity organizations run everything. But that's not, that's not feasible. Like we need universities and academics still too. It can't just be a one, can't just shift the one stream to a different stream and ex expect that to work out. Yeah, there's a lot of cost in terms of time and energy to running those organizations as well. So that's not free and not without its own problems. But I do think that we need to be open to lots of different solutions and to to really interrogate what works well and um, maybe roll it out a bit more when we, we do find a model that works, but making sure we don't have all our eggs in one basket. And I think that's what this is. It's just making sure that 
universities aren't everything. So um, we've got to make sure that they don't hold everything just in case something goes wrong. I know I'm definitely, definitely one that's excited to see what that future looks like. But maybe as like a final question for this podcast, I guess, what can um, readers expect from you next in terms of writing or other projects that you're involved in? Well, I think what I was very proud of in this book, um, Technology and the Historian, was to give a multinational look. I, I, I really felt like I was able to draw on my experience of having done digital work in Canada, the United States, and in the UK, and to share with people how some of those were experienced differently. Um, but it also made me aware that I missed a lot of the world. And so I've been really, I've been working with a lot of Latin American scholars the past few years. Um, I'm really interested in kind of building my knowledge around what else is going on in digital work around the world to think about how what's happening in the West isn't necessarily the whole story. So that's where my energy has been going lately. And I'm, I'm hoping to continue to build on that and tell more global stories moving forward. Well, cool. I'm excited to see that work or more of that work when it comes out. Um, so thanks again for joining me on this podcast. Again, we've been talking with um, Adam Grimble about his book, Technology and the Historian. Thank you. Thank you for having me.